0: That right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, FIFTY at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I usually say I'm coming to you live from Macquarie University, but today I'm coming to you live from my house in Sydney. And so you might hear some noise in the background from my four-year-old daughter or my six-month-old son, uh, and for that, I apologize uh, ahead of time. And I especially apologize to the person I'm speaking to today. Matt Taylor is a professor of history at De Montfort University, and he is the author of just, um, well, I was joking with him before the recording. Uh, the book I wish I had read most before I wrote my own book. <laughs> it, it, his book is called Sport and the Home Front Wartime Britain at Play, 1939 1945. It's out with Rutledge with their studies in modern British history uh, in 2020. Thank you so much for joining me, Matt. Finally, and sorry, uh, I've had to. I have to apologize to him again because I've cancelled on Matt. I think twice now. <laughs> so thank you for finally for finally um, for finally getting on the phone with me after I've been so rude.
1: <laughs> nah, not at all. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be able to speak to you finally. Kay.
0: Yeah, I, I have to say, like I was saying to you before, I love this book. Um, and it, there was so much uh, I, I drew from it personally, and I wanted to know how you developed this project. Uh, where did it come from? Um, how did you conceive of it? Is is um, it something you've been working on for a long time, or was its generation really rapid?
1: Um, the former, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, it's, it this like like quite a lot of books, I suppose, has quite a, had quite a long gestation period, and um, so. In actual fact, the first it's linked back to the first piece of academic work I ever did, which is while I was doing my my PhD, which is on was on the kind of uh, social history of um, uh, football in England. Um, and in the context of that, um, myself and my supervisor at the time, Pierre Lanfranchi, were, were invited to contribute uh, um, a chapter to a book that colleagues at, at de Montfort were putting together on the kind of um, cultural and social history of the Second World War. and they wanted something on football. And so that's when I first kind of it was kind of aside from my it wasn't the same period as my um, PhD slightly slightly afterwards. So I did a little bit of work on that with with Pierre. and I thought, mm, I think' there's, I think there's a little bit more to find out here. And uh, in the meantime, you know, did another couple of book projects, um, and I came back to it around about. So that was in that, that was initially in the nineteen nineties. I came back around about two thousand and ten, I think it was. You know, what's my next book project going to be? After finishing quite a quite a big book on the on the on the history of, uh, of football in, in in Britain called the Association Game, I was thinking, well, what do I do next? I thought, well, hang on, there, there may be something here. There may be couple of articles, um, did, the, did the articles, uh, did did a bit of research. And I think the process in, in a way was all the time thinking, well, <clears throat> might this be enough for a book? Might this be enough for a book? And if I'm being honest, that continued to be the question I asked myself up to the the uh the end of you know the completion of the book and possibly post-publication as well i was still thinking you know is there enough and i think i've just about proved there is enough um but yeah it, w- it was a project that i was I, I, I was interested in from from the my first research work and um, i became very interested in the kind of broader um historiography um not on sport but on on the kind of uh, the home front and the social history, uh, social and cultural history of the home front. And I was increasingly thinking to myself, well, great books here, but there's a gap. They say very little about leisure and they say very little about sport specifically. And I think sport does add significantly to what what we know about then what we can know about um, uh, the, how people um, behaved in the home front, but what they thought and how it connected to to notions of c- social citizenship, the nation, um, and and various broader, I think, research questions. So so that's how it came about really, Keith. Yeah,
0: I'm, I mean, obviously, you know, my own interest lies very much okay. in the same area. And I do wonder, like, I have my own thoughts, but I, I wonder what you're thinking. Why in this story of the Second World War, why has sport been so neglected? I was shocked when I found out how many people were playing oh. sports in France, and I was equally shocked in reading your book and finding out just how vibrant sport was um, in in Britain. Because I was under the impression that it, even now, you know, until reading it, that it was not as prevalent. So, oh. why has sport been so neglected as part of these stories?
1: yeah well, I, I think it partly I think I address this to a degree in the kind of kind of introduction to uh, to the book and in various other I think it partly comes from i suppose both both the kind of historiography on sport and the his and those who have written you know more broadly on the kind of social and cultural history of the war. um in terms of the sport, I just think that there seems to be this notion, um certainly in in, in terms of work on Britain, that that the set you know there's not much to say about the second world war yeah i mean um people played a little bit you know the government tended to be you know generally recognize it as as being uh, of some use to the war effort but you know there wasn't a great deal of debate there wasn't a great deal going on i think that's the other view and and i think kind of that fits in many ways to the fact that you know that that in terms of the key sports you know none of the none of the international matches or key matches that Took place are recognised as genuine caps for players or genuine you know they're the wartime competitions the wartime finals you know and that they don't they don't um they don't go into the, in the into the record books they're not statistically recognised so the idea that this is a kind of an interruption I think comes from those in a commas sports historians working on the area and I think I think for those more generally um I think there is an element of a continuation of this idea that you know, well, how important can something which really was relatively trivial compared with the other important aspects of people's life, how important can that be? Um, but but then if we think about you know how you know the huge amount of work that's been done on film and cinema and things like this, you know, which were which recognised almost from, from the beginning as being extremely important, not just in terms of propaganda, but in how people. Um, how people engaged with the war and how, you know, and, and the, you know, how they how they dealt with it in terms of their free time and how they took time away. And so it so it is, you know, it, it's an odd thing that that sport, uh, you know, has been maybe there's a sense that enough has been covered in terms of, um, you know, looking at looking at other forms of um uh, entertainment you know which which has been you know certainly cinema has been covered very well but I would suggest that you know alongside sport other forms of kind of entertainment and leisure also have, you know still have their histories to be written
0: I, I, I want to really uh, I mean we're on New Books and Sports I think I'm preaching to the choir a little bit I'm sure when I say this but I want to stress uh, Matt your book is not just it's not a kind of although it is quite comprehensive in many ways. And I mean that in a, as a compliment. Um, it's not a compendium of sporting events. It's, it's deeply um, argumentative about what sport means for this notion of the people's war and how sport helps to shape or to um, pull apart the ties of unity that people assume were generated by the wartime uh, in Britain. So I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what were your broader like Theoretical aims. Like what was it that you were trying to show us through sport? Um, just I i know that it's not just that it happened, but I guess I'm asking you, give people yeah. the big thrust.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I I suppose it was to to um it came from this inkling, I think, that I had when I first started kind of, you know, uncovering the what happened element of it. And actually, you, you know, you're absolutely correct. The what happened is. It's just a it's, it's just a starting point, you know. It's a starting point for them realizing, okay, there was some sport going on, and even when there wasn't, you know, people debated, you know, if there were restrictions, you know, why and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think for me, I was I became really interested in these. I obviously the idea of the people's war, which has been much debated, and um, you know, it, it, it's it, I suppose in many ways kind of its reality as against the way in which. Um, you know, in the post-war period, you know, the idea was was has really been developed and has become an important part of people's memories and popular memory of the Second World War. Um, but I was interested in, in connecting it to some of the ideas around, I think, citizenship and um, uh, national identity. And as you say, the kind of the, the notions of unity, but also the fractures that existed in kind of the notion of 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 the nation, what the na- what the nation means at a time of war, and I was really interested uh, to give an idea of kind of the kind of the the books that influence. I, mean, I was really particularly kind of influenced by Sonia Rose's work, um, "Which People's War?" Her book, "Which People's War," which was really very much about that issue about um, you know the, the 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 tensions between calls to unity. In terms of the notion of, of you know we're involved in a people's war, but 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 within that also the the, the obvious and clear tensions between you know a range of things in, in relation to gender. She talks about gender, she talks, talks about um uh, the, the split between city and countryside, the split between regions, um issues of race, which do feature a little bit in, in my book as well. And so. I think it was it was that wh- that was one of the big ideas that I wanted to explore in relation to to sport because it seemed to me very clear that um, uh, in in the rhetoric of um, uh, of what sport meant for those who both uh, at various times who kind of supported but also challenged it um, it was it was connected very closely to these broader debates about the people's war, these broader debates about, you know, what, what are we contributing to the war effort and and how are we being, in inverted commas, good citizens? Uh, and actually, you know, um, keeping your sports club going, you know, some people interpreted as very closely linked to, to good citizenship. But at other times of the war, you know, playing to, to you know going to going to bet for instance on the dogs or get, or spending your afternoon at the dog <laughs> track could be considered quite the opposite that was you know that was a bad that was a bad that that was someone who wasn't con- contributing to, to, to the war in any way and so it shifted at different times but it's clear that that that's because sport meant meant things to, to lots of people and even for those for whom it didn't mean a lot they recognized it it, it was important to those who who were significant to the war effort, kind of war workers, servicemen and women, you know, it was absolutely clear that that it fed into these broader debates. And I suppose, yeah, it's not, I suppose it's not, I'm not answering in terms of a big theoretical approach, but I was very interested in kind of testing those sorts of ideas, which have really come to the fore in some of the best writing on the kind of social and cultural history of wartime Britain and really testing to what extent sport um, both fitted uh, uh, challenge, but 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 kind of added to, to to those debates and to what we know in terms of those things.
0: Yeah, I I mean I think you were extremely successful, and um, the the book itself uh, for people who haven't read it or who would like to know more about it, it's actually structured really thematically. Um, and so when I first looked at the organization, I was like, oh, this is I wasn't anticipating it when I when I first picked it up but it, I thought it really worked well. And so the first chapter in some ways deals with, this is the chapter sport, the government and civilian morale deals with that big question. I mean, why play sport during a war at all? Right. And so I guess, you know, I, I'd start us out with that question. Um, you know, how strong was the movement to kind of ban sport during the war? What, what was the you know kind of initial impetus for for banning it or keeping it
1: yeah so I mean I I mean and that and that in a sense was the was the first chapter that I worked on as well when I was talking about kind of the articles that I initially started on I kind of began there because in, in one sense that was the broader frame I suppose to for understanding lots of the other issues and in terms of kind of you know archival material as well. It you know there you know it allowed me to go and you know look at you know fairly substantial number of files in the National Archives, which were linked to, to Home Office and Ministry of Home Security files, on on the three really significant sports that they were concerned about, which was which was soccer, and horse racing and greyhound racing um and so yeah that in terms of the, the, the how it fits in with you know these debates you know should we play and, and the movement kind of for and against i suppose the general sense which i think is correct if we compare if we compare it in Britain to, to the sec- attitudes in the second world war compared to the first world war is that is that generally there was generally there was support for the notion that there is some value in in playing sport um And partly that link to the notion, uh, you know, the chapter is based around this idea of civilian morale, which is not, which doesn't come from, you know, it's not um, a retrospective imposition of this notion. This was very much discussed by the government, by social research organisations, which were, which worked for the government, such as Mass Observation, which features quite a lot in the book, um, you know, and other, other research agencies. And it was really important because there was, it was linked to this concern um, about what was going to happen when the war started, the the, the, fear, the, the fear that there would be the immediate threat of, of air attack and bombing, and so issues of safety became really important in that sense. And so plans had been made to um, to uh, make sure, certainly in the in the early weeks of war, that all entertainments and places of entertainment and sporting events and things like this would would cease in the first few weeks. That was there's a sense in some of the writing on that 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 was kind of worked out. You know, amongst the authorities, you know, in the first few days, yeah, not really. It had it, already been decided. It had already been decided, kind of a year before, that that w- that's what would happen on the outbreak of war, and um, and so there wasn't there wasn't a huge amount of um, of challenge, uh, you know, to, to the fact that that, that initially uh, place uh, sports places and places of entertainment were were closed down, but there was a recognition that that would soon be eased. Um, and so what then happens i think is that there are there are um there are there are particular groups that are that are campaigning for for more sport the um uh sports authorities are engaged with the government uh, at national level and then you know later kind of kind of kind of at local level with different authorities and it very much depends you know attitudes um, centrally, amongst politicians and, and and more more broadly, I suppose amongst those who were pushing for for more sport to take place, it very much depended on different periods of the war and so there was a shift it was it was a forever shifting um um story really. Um, in terms of you know how how government policy for instance de- developed it's not enough to say you know the government generally you know the government recognized that sport was a good thing so let's give as much opportunity as possible to do that that was their kind of default position but it, but that varied at significant times in the war so you know at the beginning of the war there were restrictions then there were ease generally and then a number of those restrictions came back Um, in the summer of, of 1940 with the with the fall of France and kind of, kind of significant um, concerns about um, uh, uh, an imminent invasion. And they were eased at various times. And then they came back very, the restrictions came back very strongly at the beginning of 1942 um, with the, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, reverses in the war for, for Singapore. And particularly a lot of concerns about um, the seriousness of, of the war effort. On the home front, and that certain certain groups and certain people weren't giving as much as they could um, to to the war effort, and actually, you know, certain sports became the focus of of attention at, the, at that time, particularly kind of kind of boxing that was taking place at the Albert Hall uh, in in you know afternoons when war workers you know should have been at work, um, and and so there was a, there was another kind of push to restrict. Um, uh, you know, at, at that point in 1942, so it was a shifting story, which makes it very interesting, I think, because because uh, the arguments uh, aren't consistent and they change at, ver- at various times, and the the emphasis, you know, placed on certain uh, on certain parts of the argument, you know, are, are more prominent um, at, at certain points than they than they are elsewhere. So I think I think it very much varies, and it also varies. Um, on the basis of sport, you know, this the, the first chapter really kind of leads also leads the reader through the fact that you know there were different attitudes within government, you know, to, to uh, in, in relation to sports like soccer, um, which was very much you know recognised as being as being key to to the morale of the the imagined male, and it was generally imagined as a as, as the male war worker initially and the serviceman. Um, Horse racing, which had a lot of governmental support anyway, but it was realised it's links with gambling and things like that. They needed to be more careful with it. And greyhound racing, which had very little support within the government. And so that kind of was hardest hit. So, yeah, it it kind of varied. I think the variety and the the shift, as I say, the shifting story that I tell is is really, you know, how how you understand, you know, how attitudes varied at different times.
0: Yeah, I mean, one thing that comes out throughout the book, um, especially in this first chapter, you're kind of setting the stage for it is just how much um, you know within the context of this idea of the people's war, how much actual kind of layering and nuance there is you're talking about social class, you're talking about region, you're talking about um, gendered notions of sport, always a lot of commentary on on women in sport uh, in the book, and and, uh, also the timeline the sport, different kinds of sport. And um, also one thing that really surprised me in reading it coming from the French perspective where I had to kind of needle out some of this, uh, but just the diversity of different government agencies that had a kind of finger in the pie of of sport. um, I was honestly (laughs) flipping back and forth Uh, to keep some of the acronyms in in my head (laughs) because there were so many different groups that were uh, I mean I mean that's
1: that's certainly something that I didn't anticipate and it and certainly the book just I mean to give you give an idea about you know for those who haven't you know in terms of sources I mean it is that you know I do use kind of official government sources you know various points throughout the book um but, but they're kind of that in, I intersperse that with kind of, you know, personal sources and things like that, which I'm kind of really interested in. But very much this chapter very much is based on uh, uh, certainly a part of it is kind of tracing the way in which the government policy developed. And what I was very surprised about, at, you know, as you say, you, well, I was when I was doing the research was how many different government departments were involved in the decisions that were made and the fact that they were competing. Effectively at various times, so um, you know it was well known that certain departments, such as the um, uh, the Ministry of Labour um, and the Ministry of Health, but particularly the Ministry of Labour, were very pro-sport in any context. You know, and 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 maintained that position almost from the beginning. Whereas um, other other bodies, um, the the service, um, see that the service. Um, uh, department, so the Army, Navy and Air Force were involved in these decisions as well. Obviously they were much more circumspect about it, but the most um, uh, the most kind of powerful certainly as, as the war developed by 1943, 1944 the most powerful of the government departments which kind of opposed um, uh, war uh, sorry, sorry, sport going ahead as much as possible and kind of uh, were very much in favour of restrictions was the Ministry of War Transport Ministry of war transport became very, very powerful in, in forty-three and forty-four. And one of the interesting things that was one of the one of the key figures there um, was a chap called um, uh, Philip Noel Baker, who was a former um, Olympic athlete uh, and later became very significant in kind of post-war sports policy. Um, but he was kind of the kind of the, the key kind of um, opponent of increasing the amount of um uh sport taking place because of you know transport reasons so yeah the range of uh, of agencies just within the government is really an interesting factor uh you know um of understanding the kind of complexity of you know how policy was developed
0: one of the things that comes out in your book too uh, and i think we i could i was just you talking about this is making me kind of flip back in my head and laugh at the number of times in which People were getting in trouble for driving too far <laughs> in yeah. their cars. The civil defense driving too far to go to matches. Yeah. Um, but the, the 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 story that you're telling is not, of course, just one of top down kind of imposition of sports, but also the kind of dramatic interest in sports despite the war from ordinary people. And so your 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 second chapter, which I really liked, um, is about sport sporting clubs and carry. You call it carrying on. So I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about. You know what were the challenges that sporting clubs faced, both material challenges, uh, challenges that the state was um, putting forward, things like that, and how that they tried to overcome those, and if they were able or unable to do that.
1: Yeah, no, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of, <laughs> this was one of the that was one of the chapters I think where where I was saying earlier on that you know I was. I was trying to work out, you know, is there, what is there, what 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 is there to find out here? I really wanted it to not be um, uh, a book which was a, which which was top down, and that, that it really was, um, you know, about people's individual experiences and t- in terms of sport that it very much looked at the grassroots that's sometimes difficult in terms of you know finding archival sources but i think actually there's there's quite a lot to, to help by looking looking at, at, at the material that's available in the second world war in terms of not just kind of club archives and how the, the press dealt with it but the fact that we've got um some kind of useful materials from um the uh National Playing Fields Association uh, records and, and mass observation and various things like that, which were interested in sports. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the first issue that, that um, kind of grassroots clubs had was simply the deci- the decision itself. Do we carry on or don't we carry on? And generally, they got the thumbs up from the government. I say it varied at different times and they got the thumbs up generally from national bodies. But even so... Clubs often made decisions based on uh, part. I mean, what I was really interested in was how significant, you know, what happened in in the First World War was uh, on kind of both helping kind of club committees make their decisions about what they would do in the Second World War, but also in providing, you know, the language, the same language that was used. So quite often, um, in making their kind of statements to the press or to. Or to um, uh, ordinary members, committees would kind of would kind of repeat, you know, the approach that they taken last time, or kind of slightly modify it, but refer to their their previous approach. So certain clubs decided not to continue playing because they'd done the same in 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 nineteen fourteen to eighteen. Um, others kind of kind of adopted, you know, you know, we will continue. We did this in, in uh, earlier you know, and would kind of develop a similar sort of language. So although the situation, the context was different, um, the First World War was important as a kind of precedent. So that was the first thing. But then I guess there were, there were a number of, uh, of kind of justifications for clubs carrying on. Um, and a lot of them did mirror, I suppose, what um, government departments said and, and other advocates said at, at central level. It was linked to improving physical fitness, it was linked to providing those in important um, uh, uh, war jobs and services with a break from their war duties. That was a kind of first significant justification. But really interesting was the, was the other two, in a sense, that they there was a real focus on, you know, we need to keep clubs alive. And the reason we need to keep clubs alive is precisely for those who can't attend at the moment, precisely for those overseas in the forces. You know, we're doing it for the boys and that was that was a, a really um, powerful and frequent argument and then that was also linked to the fact that this was also these clubs also needed to be kept alive for younger generations so there was a lot of there's a lot of emphasis on youth and the importance of uh, of those coming through and you know we we you know you know we have to keep these clubs alive to allow you know to not just for the future of sport in this country but kind of the 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 future of um uh you know uh, manhood, or, British manhood and womanhood in the sense. Um, in terms of the restrictions, I mean, there were, there were financial restrictions, which were really important kind of um, membership problems. One of the key aspects, I suppose, about um, the kind of geography uh, of the population in, in um Second World War Britain, obviously, lots of lots of people um, in the forces were away from home at various times. But many, many, even in the forces, would spend a lot of the war um, at home on on the home front. Um, but the, but a really significant um, aspect of people's experience was was mobility. People were moving. If they were in the forces, they were moving for work. Um, pe- often, you know, workplaces would move. You know, from areas. Which were safe, uh, less safe to, to areas which were safer. So the mobility of people obviously made um, the, the uh, uh, made it very difficult for lots of clubs to exist in terms of simply having enough people to play and having the finances. Obviously, where if people moved to certain places, then there would be new uh, members potentially. So, so finances were often a, a problem, and clubs used a variety of kind of ways of, of kind of dealing with that. Getting getting people who were who were non playing members to contribute, uh, often reducing the amount of um, uh, of subscriptions so that you know people who were struggling could could still could still be uh, uh, play a part. And so there were the membership problems. There was also the significance of the entertainment tax, which had been a factor in, um, uh, in 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 relation to kind of British. British entertainment, British sport since uh, 1916, since the First World War. And so there were campaigns to reduce the um, size uh, of the the contribution that clubs needed to make to the entertainment tax. And then there were the very practical things about rationing of um, food, you know, food that was put on for, for visiting teams and clothing and equipment. You know that that had a significant effect on um on sports clubs. You know, uh, from from the very top. I mean, famously, kind of Manchester United when when the Old Trafford was bombed, lost thirteen sets of of jerseys and uh, and, and kit, and so had to borrow kit from other clubs. And then when rationing on clothing really <laughs> took hold. Clubs basically asked for their kits back. So a lot of these teams, even at the at the higher levels, were kind of short of kit, and this this was even more significant at lower levels. So there was a lot of the campaigning that um, governing bodies uh, at at sport were doing was really with the board of trade to actually uh, manage to to acquire a few more clothing coupons, and clubs would even you know ask their supporters to. To, to pass on any spare clothing coupons they had. But that in itself became sometimes quite um, controversial, um, you know, in the sense that there would be complaints and letters to the press that, you know, why, why, are, why are sports clubs being prioritised when our ordinary workers, our ordinary, <coughs> sorry, our ordinary coal miners and, and people in, in important professions are having to, having to go to work in rags? And so at the heart of all these debates... Was this notion I think, which which fed through, um, you know, all aspects of kind of of, of kind of uh, uh, domestic life in Britain, was was the notion of, of equality and the and the and the idea that you know we need to ensure that there's fairness and equality amongst different groups, which often wasn't achieved, but was really at the heart of lots of these debates. So so clubs have really significant problems. Many clubs. Um, you know, cease to exist. But I think one of the interesting things was how many clubs managed to to um, keep functioning and keep going under these incredibly trying circumstances.
0: Yeah, the one uh, that comes through, I think, pretty strongly throughout your book, which is that um, in difficult circumstances, oftentimes club leaders, individual athletes, sporting officials, um, they often work together or or um work if not together then they work creatively to try to keep things alive I'm um I'm jumping ahead a little bit but um you know one of the the kind of fights that you I think you can see this kind of contestation but also creativity and also kind of debates about equality is the the fight over Sunday sport Uh, (laughs) um which was really it's not in this chapter but it's kind of a similar a similar kind of set of issues um, you know, can we play sports on Sunday? Who can play sports on Sunday? What sports can be played on Sunday <laughs> and, yeah, and how, yeah. um, and, 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 what regions <laughs> and, and <laughs> um, so you get that kind of, you get that kind of contestation. Um, but also, uh, cleverness in some, in some of the circumstances to, to keep sport alive, because for a lot of people, it was a, a, a very important part of their wartime experience that came yeah, really now, strongly
1: yeah I, I, absolutely and you know i think i think yeah that the, the you know it, it's interesting because I, I suppose many kind of episodes in the book are about contest you know contestation over resources contestation over over space uh and over and over yeah the and over kind of traditions which i suppose in the sense of kind of um what we do with with, with sunday sport can we you know Given the fact that most most clubs and governing bodies and councils initially uh, were very reticent to open facilities on Sundays, um, that but it led to you know a broader kind of opening up of you know well what 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 do we stand for? What do we represent both as a nation, you know, and more more you know more significantly kind of at, lo- at local level as a kind of council and things like that. You know, how do we balance? The importance to our nation of keeping people fit and happy, and being being good and uh, uh, you know um, focused, war workers, as against the the uh, the impact that people you know playing playing on a Sunday might have on those you know you know who, who are uh, very religious and kind of you know regard it as as a, a significant um, uh, you know a significant. Problem in terms of the way they see the nation and the way they see um, the way in which even even a nation at war should maintain traditions. Part of the things we're fighting for, are, many people argue, are certain traditions, and we can't let those go, even in the most trying of circumstances. So, so yeah, these 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 challenges, which which what took place on um, on, a, on a kind of, they do take place on a national stage. But the very interesting thing, you know, is the fact that that quite often these decisions are being made at kind of regional and local levels, you know, with slightly different um, uh, outcomes, you know, in each place. So, you know, Sunday sport might, might be allowed at certain times in, in one city, you know, 20 miles down the road, there might be a different viewpoint. So, so I the, did, I did love
0: like the one guy in Birmingham just blocking all of Sunday sport or whatever. You know, he's he's in charge and yeah. he, he doesn't like that. So no one in yeah. Birmingham. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. So the uh, you know some of the amateur associations and yeah, yeah, just said well, yeah, you know, we (laughs) this is our tradition. So we will, you know, we will, we will not. And then there were connections made to you know, well, we we represent the nation then more fully than down in London where they're allowing it to go ahead. Well, you know, and so there were kind of these anti-metropolitan undertones to a lot of the arguments quite often. So and those those things, you know, are are part of the debates as well. I, I almost
0: felt like that could have been. Um, in your in your subtitle even is how how rich um, the kind of local versus metropolitan um, contests can be and it's not just I mean obviously you you point out the you know the tensions in Scotland or in Wales which have as you point out in several different uh, chapters um, different notions of what the nation or the people might be in the first place. But also just within England itself, and how the kind of home counties become a symbol in many ways, but also um, a symbol that a lot of people reject. Uh, I, I thought that was really well well done throughout the work.
1: Yeah, and, and it partly relates to you know I suppose to again different experiences. You know, certain parts of certain parts of the country, you know, soft, suffered um, bombing. You know in a way that others didn't. And that wasn't, of course, just regionalised. I mean, kind of urban areas were very significantly impacted, obviously kind of Coventry, Birmingham, Belfast, um, Liverpool. You know, so these cities, you know, very much were affected by bombing as well, of course, uh, as London was. However, in certain other parts of the North and Midlands of, of England, for instance, there was where there wasn't much impact in terms of, you know, on a day to day concern, there was this sense that, you know, okay, you know, there's some, you know, there is there is this kind of residual tension that somehow there's more focus on you know the problems in London. However, you know there's an element of guilt. You know we're not really experiencing it in the same way, and we recognise you know that, that that the impact on us isn't quite the same. So so yeah, the, the fact that people that there were different you know experiences in different contexts, which which un, which also kind of cross cuts, you know I suppose the more. Um, the more straightforward kind of regional tensions, which 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 are in, t- in wartime are building on yeah they're building on the the peacetime tensions as well.
0: I think your book finishes with like four extremely, um, I-, I think really well argued chapters. And your your work, I I I am con- conscious of the time that we probably can't talk about all of them. Uh, but there's a chapter work, fitness, and play on the the kind of contested notion of what is fitness how do we achieve military preparedness there's a chapter on called sport and everyday life and wartime that looks at what everyday life even means and this one in particular I mean I have everyday life in the title of my book and I was like I needed to read this book first um, <laughs> I could have used this uh, a, a chapter on broadcasting and wartime sport and how sports broadcasting changes and then the final chapter on sport war in the nation and complicating this idea of, uh the people's war and the nation's war uh, so matt do you have a preference about which ones we're we're able to talk about i think it, we'd be really rushing and doing injustice really? if we tried to talk about
1: all of them but well i mean how about i mean i'm i i think i've, I've hinted a couple of times um at the kind of how important i suppose Looking at at personal narratives was, for me, in the book, Um, and so the the chapter you mentioned on kind of sport and everyday life, and you know, I'm I'm absolutely not. By the way, I'm not. I'm I'm not at all convinced that I've I've nailed. You know, the huge (laughs) amount of. You know uh, debates around what, what you know how historians deal with notions of everyday life. I I barely I barely scratch the surface, and I was aware of that um, in terms of kind of trying to frame it. But it was it was clear to me that I had to have something about this because um, uh, because it was I think one of the key parts of my argument was I think that um, it's just as as an element of. Certain people's lives—not everyone's, by any means—but certain num- number of pe- people's lives, yeah. sport became a part of the everyday, and the everyday became incredibly significant in a wartime context. You know, it effectively the everyday became politicized. You know, people every what, what people do in every moment of the day kind of almost becomes a, a, an element that, that is important to us. How they spend their time you know how uh, uh, to the extent that they're careful with their resources to the extent to which they are they are um uh, keeping themselves fit not for themselves or their family only but for their nation and you know doing doing their bit so I think it was really important that I cut that, that I had this chapter which uh, addressed address this idea and that I really kind of made as much use as possible as, a, as the kind of personal narratives that I'd that i really you know was absolutely searching for for this um i was helped i think i mentioned it a couple of times but i was helped a bit by um the fact that the the um historians of this period have the mass observation archive so yes, for people i'm who
0: extremely jealous of mass observation
1: yeah i mean it is it's a great resource i do uh, i do um i have done a kind of a course which uh, which is on kind of um wartime britain in, in war and peace which kind of basically traces this period of mass observation so basically it was a social social research organisation established in the late 1930s and kind of uh, continued into the 1940s it actually still exists in a, in a in a in a different form and so it it's it's still operating um, and the archive is great because basically they had lots of different Uh, forms of of, of, um, uh, generating material but the the two main ones were they would send investigators out to to just see what was happening and note down people's experiences Um, but the one I use a little bit more I think is is the uh, what we call the directives or the national panel so what would basically be sent out would be monthly questionnaires, effectively to about two thousand people. It varied the numbers during the war at different times, who would respond to issues of the day and, um, you know, politics. What do you think of Churchill? What do you think of of, of Stafford Cripps? What do you think of various people? And um, you know, how are things going in you know in you know parts of uh, Western Europe and the East and things like that? So various aspects of the war, but also, you know, they were very interested in just people's people's ordinary lives so what what do you think about you know notions what do you think about spiritualism what are your views of religion and sport was one of the things not the major thing but one of the things they were they were consistently interested in so i particularly used one questionnaire from 19 42 which was one of these times early 1942 where there were lots of debates about um, you know should should sport be more restricted should it continue which asked people their their opinion on that question so I was able to use that particularly in the first chapter but the second the, the second question was in really useful for me particularly in this part of the book which asked people about what were their experiences of war and what you got often there was kind of potted potted histories but reflections as well. On what sport was meant to them or if it didn't mean much to them you know what it meant what why it didn't mean much to them what it meant to other people and so you can tap into those sorts of things to really get a sense of you know um how sport had become a part of people's you know people's histories and their every their, their everyday existence at wartime so with that alongside you know kind of unpublished and and published memoirs which of which there are kind of more increasingly those that have been found out some great stuff at the um, imperial war museum you know i was able to kind of get a sense of what in inverted commas ordinary people and uh, what their experiences uh, of sport in, in the war were which i think was really really valuable and probably in a sense my favorite probably probably the 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 bit of the book i like most that i was kind of because i thought that was going to be something i was really going to struggle with and i got a little bit more than i expected
0: yeah one of the things that tied together in for me at least this chapter on everyday life and then the next chapter on broadcasting was the way in which sport could be used to promote a sense of normalcy within an abnormal situation Hmm. um you know with this emphasis on sport and the reminiscences that sporting Mm -hmm. locations could and sporting events could produce for people kind of um ex as as a as a way to like generate either in in on the radio or in in you know in person um you know positive feelings and an otherwise kind of like yeah difficult (laughs) time and so the those two chapters in particular and i was reading the part where these children are playing sport during the evacuation and that's like a way to remain kind of tied in and they're inviting yeah. their parents to come to sports days and i'm like how i'm just thinking to myself how hard that would have been yeah. um and then people listening to the radio listen you know them finding the right sports stars to talk about the big events of the 1930s no, to bring it up so they can no, kind of reminisce no, and how that no, helped no, promote morale in this otherwise difficult timeout. That was really, yeah. I think, a great part of the book.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it, it became, because one of the interesting things in a way, I mean, I know we started by saying, you know, both of those, I think, you know, oh, it's amazing how much sport was going on, which is true. <clears throat> but I think particularly in dealing with the, um, the, the kind of chapter on, on the BBC and radio and broadcasting wartime sport was the fact that, yeah, there was a lot going on but there wasn't as much going on as in peacetime so the the kind of key role the bbc played in in ensuring that that sport which they recognized very early on was was one of a number of things which were going to be crucial in terms of um you know in terms of their wartime broadcasting policy it stood alongside um a, 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 a particular types of music and comedy and various other things as a key to what became called the Forces Programme. So the Forces Programme was particularly uh, for the, that imagined, um, well, imagined but real um, uh, service listener who would be listening perhaps at home, but 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 um, abroad as well when they were on service. Um, and uh, so the so the BBC did a lot to facilitate as much sport taking place as, as possible, which I didn't didn't realise until I kind of looked deep into the kind of the BBC written archives that they were actively trying to, trying to create competitions and create events, but obviously they could only do that to a certain extent. So they, they came very early on, on, on the significance of, of kind of producing a kind of uh, an approach, uh, which focused on reminiscence of, of sport in the, in, you know, big matches, big clubs in, in the thirties, particularly, and, you know, going further back. So, you know sport sport becomes something in the imagination sport becomes something which is kind of connected to to notions of nostalgia and how how the 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 listener kind of imagines um a pre-war and might look ahead to a post-war and so i think it beca- it it, it um, has a very significant role in terms of that um which kind of feeds into to then kind of um how how you know, uh, various authorities, but also or ordinary clubs think about what um, sport may look like in in a period after the war, so how it links to reconstruction. So yeah, this idea of reminiscent sport and and the nostalgia associated with it was really was really something I was surprised about, but really becomes very important. and so these these programs which focus on that become the key at various times the key um, 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 sports programs which are broadcast on the BBC.
0: And that same kind of, you know, imagination of sport continues into your final chapter. And it's funny that you said, oh, you know, I was worried that this wasn't enough for a book because reading your last chapter, I was like, oh, my gosh, there's like four books here. (laughs) And you even (laughs) at, at times you kind of remark, you know, like, oh, you know, more research needs to be done on this or, you know, there's this interesting thing here and then you know it's like you I, you devote a couple of pages to it but i can see it being a whole book all on its own uh, not to not to scoop any future projects of yours but um you know anyone anyone who's in british history and is looking for projects his last chapters chaka chockers with them mm. <laughs> but it i i think you know the the just to link it with the with the radio chapter, I mean, the role that cricket plays in people's imagination of what they're fighting for um, is pretty important. So I, I wonder if you can talk to us about this last chapter, because I do think it was a big chapter. It's obviously an important chapter where you try to bring back a lot of these threads, uh, back to this question of the people's war. And you even kind of try to separate out what the nation is versus what the people are. In the People's War, and so I, I guess I was hoping you could unpack this last chapter for us because it's really rich, um, really rich final chapter.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess it's it's a t- it's a tricky one because it was um, it was the chapter where, <laughs> which probably explains the, the 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 fact that there were lots of things which we talked about for a little bit and then might have been developed more. That that it was the one where oh, you know, I found some material here. Now this needs to go in the final chapter. <laughs> this needs to go in the final. Because, because there was so, in a way, I think what I was trying to do with this chapter is, is, you know, it can be read on its own, but it really, I think, picks up, you know, as you said, a, a number of the threads, which, which really are running through the book, you know, the debates throughout the book, um, which is the extent to which sport becomes, how it becomes seen and how the narratives around sport um, are, are connected to those of the nation. And and how far um, uh, it became, it, it was argued about in terms of uh, you know the key debates around the People's War that this this is a this is a war which we're all in together you know despite class you know despite our, our class divisions and, and despite those things and what, whatever those divisions things are unified and we need to kind of connect those together. So for instance, I was I was particularly interested in um, things like the way in which you know, sporting metaphors were used, you know, by the press in various contexts of the war, and there's there's lots of examples of that. There's these kind of great examples where, um, you know, BBC journalists and other journalists would kind of, uh, which did happen, would kind of kind of watch um, um, uh, uh air, air air battles taking place during the Battle of Britain, and would would um commentate on them as if they were you know sporting events um and so that was that was very common and there was but but it also generated an, a fair amount of criticism from those who would say you know it's this idea is you know the kind of the kind of um George Orwell idea you know um uh, war by another means and you know so people would argue that that was the case but would also you know, undermine it very significantly, and say, "Well, actually, you know, um, we have to think about this in very different ways. This is not this is not sport. Things are more important in those sense." So you also had, so you had those sorts of debates, um, and I think I was also interested in terms of how how the war connected with ideas of uh, of, of kind of uh, assumed ideas of fair play and fairness and sportsmanship. These i these notions of uh, of uh, that how the British projected themselves in relation to sport, but but actually, which which went well beyond sport. I mean, in fact, just recently, uh, again, uh, a book that I would have really be, uh, uh, usefully used for this book had it been published at the time. I just reviewed a book which is about um, by by. Um, uh, I can forget the name of the the author, which is is about a kind of history of fair play and the narrative and discourse of fair play, and that comes into this book as well. You know the extent to which we can use, we can apply those sorts of ideas, which are significant in the way which we imagine the British play sport, and the extent to which we can actually apply those to to warfare. You know, so can the language be be similar? Can we talk about it in in, in similar sorts of ways? So, so I guess yeah, in terms of. And then it goes on to, I and mean, we talked about we talked about the debates over uh, over Sunday sport. You know how um, kind of outsiders were treated, and how you know uh, issues in terms of race were were um, um, dealt with in terms of the war. So those are all important here. So I think overall, what what I was kind of trying to do with the chapter was really just understand the extent to which um, sport. <laughs> sport became elevated uh in in not not so much in terms of what took place but in terms of the way in which it was positioned in in the narrative in the ordinary narrative um of kind of uh you know newspapers and and others the extent to which it became elevated is a, is a really key aspect of the nation um and the way in which it was considered to encapsulate the British people. So you're right, there is this tension, I think, in these debates around you know, what's the, what the nation is and what the people are. But I think what I, what I felt very much is that even when a lot of sport wasn't taking place, sport became more central and more core to, to these debates of how we see ourselves and how we see ourselves at, at these times of tension and stress than even before and so i think that was one of the things i wanted to explore um in this final chapter
0: well, one of the things i kind of drew from and maybe this is just me is that um you know wartime british sport wasn't unified it wasn't harmonious but it was and it wasn't unchanging but it was british <laughs> and yeah. there were all of these other influences but they weren't as strong an influence and maybe not much of an influence at all compared to kind of the pre-war Are existing fractures within this nation, right, Uh, that continued in in meaningful ways and kind of, um, you know, people could imagine a kind of more harmonious post-war, but actually, as we know, like that didn't that wasn't what happened per se, Um, but that there was something kind of that there le plus a change, you know, things changed, but the 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 Mm -hmm. fractures within society didn't didn't heal over but they also weren't Americanized or Polishized or yeah. in, influenced in, in in major ways by this global catastrophe that was happening or happening around them. They were mostly or most strongly influenced by things that had already happened in Britain and that were yeah. happening.
1: Do you know what? And I think you're right about that. I think that's that's kind of, although I probably don't articulate it as clearly as you have then, I think that kind of is what, what, what it argues to a, degree in the last chapter and you know thinking about it that's also something that I'm i don't know I'm kind of slightly um uh I, I'm not sure that I'm in, putting it in another context I mean I'm one of the things I'm very interested in kind of one of the things I'm working kind of working on at the moment you know going forward is is um you know looking at I'm very interested in the kind of transnational links you know and kind of Transnational histories and things like that, which I've I've written in other contexts are really important, even in in, in the sense that quite often, you know, the British see themselves as fairly insular in terms of sport, um, in in certain contexts anyway. Um, And I think ultimately the picture I do present here, despite the fact that, you know, various times, you know, cities like London and other cities were kind of very... Kind of uh, uh, multinational and involved, you know, um, pe- uh, and had kind of American servicemen, people, people, as you say, from kind of Polish Polish forces, free French forces, you know, lots of people, you know, intermingling, and um, you know, I think the I think the picture we have is kind of sport in in, in wartime is, is is relatively insular, and so in that sense, despite what I've said elsewhere, I think there is an element where um, the wartime period. Is a slight interruption from what was happening elsewhere, which is interesting as well. Because I think, I think in terms of the First World War, what I've understood about that, that isn't the case at all. So, so yeah, um, I, I think I do. Certainly in terms of the way people saw the values associated with sport and how that connected to so-called national values, um, I do think you know, you know that 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 is very much connected to a traditional notion of Britishness, which is is felt the need to protect that is, is very high on people's agenda.
0: I, I, I want to um, highlight, and before I ask a final question, um, one of the things that I didn't, this is how I brought up the questions, but uh, kind of ties into the last thing you said, which is uh, the way in which these kind of traditional ideas were actually quite flexible. So in that final chapter, of course, you have a big section on, Uh, the role or the kind of reception of black athletes in Britain. And although it's a big change that black athletes are increasingly present, um, they're kind of in the context of the war seen as uh, that their participation is seen as necessary as part of fair play. And as a contrast to what the United States is doing, trying to kind of preserve color barriers. And and another thing that's often comes up in your book and you bring it up a lot and I didn't bring it up, um, in chatting with you is uh, the increasing role of women in all of these sporting movements, but that oftentimes their participation is couched in very traditional ways, like working class women make claims to to sporting leisure on the basis of their improvement of their labor and things like that, yeah. rather than a, as a kind of challenge to as a kind of gender challenge to, yeah. you know, so that's a really big part of your book. And I we I didn't bring that up, but readers who are going hey what ha- what about women what <laughs> that is in the book i promise yeah, yeah um, i
1: mean just just really yeah yeah please yeah just really quickly i mean yeah on, on the issue of race i mean i think you know without going to huge details about it I, I think it's crucial i mean elsewhere i've written quite a lot about um boxing in the co- color bar and i think you know it's more than just boxing but i think in terms of that story the sec- what was happening in the second world war in britain was is absolutely crucial to understand that and how attitudes change on on the on the role of women I think you're right I think I made the decision early on and I think it was the right decision to I didn't want a chapter just on women you know that's that makes no sense because it they were so important to, at various points I mean I think I think attitudes to women workers are actually a key part of uh, the fourth chapter where I talk about kind of work fitness and play yeah and um, and I think I am dealing with yeah uh, both the tension between traditional attitudes, um, but also the, the 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 ability to be flexible at certain times, and the fact that many women were pushing against those sorts of ideas. And I think although you know I, obviously I encourage people to to read the book to find out more about that. I've also kind of written a little bit more about that with Raff Nicholson, so Raff, um, kind of colleague who's who she actually wrote her. Um, uh, MA thesis on women uh, in the Second World War, and she was um, generous enough to let me have a look at that while I was writing the book. And at various times, I said, "Well, this is really great. You need to publish this." And so, <laughs> when we were given the up- we were given the opportunity to, to to write a piece for a special issue of um, Sport in History, um, I said, "Well, Raf we need to we need to we need to draw on your resources here because she had some great material, um, which I think added added significantly to." To what I had and um, so I think I think although there's some good stuff in there I think that's also the place to go to an article we wrote in Sport and History which is I think a much broader encapsulation of you know how how rich this this um this history of, of women's sport in the second world war was
0: all right uh Matt final final question I ask people and you've hinted to it already um what are you working on now what can we look forward to reading from you next
1: OK, so the thing I'm, I'm kind of working on, hoping to finish reasonably soon, is a, is a, a kind of um, uh, slightly more than a textbook, but it's a, it's a kind of general synthesis, um, which I've called World of Sport, which is about kind of the... I suppose it's about the link between sports history and transnational history and the way in which sports his, history, I think, ha- the, the issue of sport can feed into what we understand about transnational history and so that kind of that kind of it was also arranged thematically but it takes you through kind of the mid-19th century mm-hmm. um, through to the 20th century what I want to do to the 1960s what I really want to do with that book is I think more than anything else um, there there is some primary source material but I want to point out the incredible work that people are already doing which even if they don't kind of and um, label it as trans, transnational history. I think is really important to those who are doing kind of transnational and global history. I think the sport has a lot to give to that and there's some great work already going on. But also, I think, point ahead to, to how more can be done in terms of that. So that's the first, that's the main thing I'm doing. And then uh, an idea that I've got after that, um, which which may or may not develop, is, is a, a history of women's boxing in Britain.
0: Well, I mean... A history of women's boxing in Britain definitely needs to be written, and um, this, uh, you know, history world of sports sounds really uh, important and useful. I'm thinking immediately like that there's a huge, um, there's a huge gap in the in the kind of teaching market. There's no really good new kind of readable accounts of sport how it how it emerges in a, in a in a kind of broad way. And how it's linked to kind of contemporary questions, maybe that as you're pointing to transnational history, um, but these kind of contemporary historiographical questions. So it sounds like it will be a very useful book for sports historians teaching uh, our increasingly um, common history courses in sports.
1: Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> it means I'm not wasting my time, hopefully.
0: <laughs> Great. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to a new, uh, books in sports, a channel on the new books network. I've been speaking with Matthew Taylor. He's a professor in history at De Montfort university. He's also the author of sport and the home front wartime Britain at play 1939 to 45. It is out with Rutledge in their studies in modern British history in 2020. Um, it's great. Pick it up, read it. And, um, wish you'd read it two years ago. <laughs> Thank you so much, (laughs) Matt, for joining us. Thanks, Keith.